in November of 1998, 36-year-old Anthony Klama was living a pretty good life. He was working as a maintenance supervisor in the same apartment complex with which he lived. Recently, he had received some high praise and was looking forward to an upcoming inspection in hopes that it could lead to a promotion. Anthony spoke with family almost every day and was looking forward to spending time with them during the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. However, one night, Anthony would leave his home and walk to a local bar, where he would play a game of darts. The next day, Anthony was nowhere to be found, and remained so to this day. The answer to his disappearance could be held with an unidentified male and a handful of strange phone calls. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 30, The Disappearance of Anthony Klamma. Oh hi, hello, it's Dom, and along with my co-host Amy, we are the hosts of Horror House, True Crime, and The Macabre. If, like us, you have a morbid curiosity with true crime, the paranormal, cults, and more, then our show may just satisfy your curiosities. We release episodes on Fridays and bonus episodes every other Wednesday. You can listen to us wherever you find your podcasts, and you can also find us on Instagram at horrorhouse underscore pod. So all that's left to say is, until next time, my friends, stay spooky. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes and bonus episodes, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash midwestmysteryfiles. I would also like to take this moment to thank my amazing patrons, Laura, Todd, and Teresa. Now, just real quick, also, welcome to episode 30, everyone. It took over two years, but we finally got here. And I just wanted to thank everyone again for bearing with me and taking time to hear and support these cases. Today's case is one that's gone unreported on for about 11 years, so I'm glad to be getting it out there. So, without further ado, on to the case. Anthony Keith Klamma was born May 1st, 1962. I wasn't able to find much in record searches on parents' names or a birthplace, although it was most likely in Illinois. I do know he has siblings and step-siblings, including his sister Linda, who has done the most speaking on Anthony over the years. One amazing fact about Anthony's early life that is mentioned in articles is that on New Year's Eve in 1963, Anthony narrowly escaped an apartment fire when he was rescued from his crib by Chicago firefighters. He would spend the next few days in the hospital to be treated for smoke, but would ultimately be unharmed and would grow through childhood into a healthy adult. In 1998, 
Anthony was 36 years old, single, and living in Palatine, Illinois. He lived at the Foxfire Apartments, located on North Rand Road in Palatine, where he also worked as a maintenance supervisor for the complex. Thursday, November 5th, 1998, was seemingly a normal day for Anthony. He most likely woke up, did his work duties at the complex, and went about whatever business he had to do for the day. That evening was a typical chilly November evening, with temperatures hovering around 38 degrees Fahrenheit. Perfect weather to walk the short distance to Splinter Sports Bar, located at 2070 North Rand Road, much like Anthony did that evening around 9 o'clock p.m. The bar was located just to the northeast of Anthony's apartment, which was located on the Hicks Road side of the complex, so it wasn't uncommon for him to make the trek on foot and to have a beer or play darts. And darts was the name of the game this particular night. Tony was reportedly at Splinters from around 9 p.m. to approximately 11.30 p.m. Witness accounts state that nothing was out of the ordinary and that Tony seemed to be acting normally. He was reportedly seen playing darts with a man who has never came forward or been identified. By all accounts, everything was normal up until the time Anthony left the bar. It would be the next day that things would seem amiss. According to Anthony's sister, Linda, he was constantly in contact with his mother and siblings, and always answered his pager to return phone calls. When none of these things occurred on Friday, November 6th, Anthony's family immediately took notice. Linda would tell the Daily Herald that not only was he not in contact with anyone, he also missed an inspection for his job that day that he was reportedly looking forward to, as he had recently received kudos for doing a fantastic job in his position and was hoping this inspection would likely lead to a promotion. The worry about his whereabouts would be compounded when knocks at his door would go unanswered, and it was noted that his silver Lincoln Continental was still in the apartment complex's parking lot. A bicycle, his only other form of transportation, was found inside the apartment once it was entered. His keys and wallet were not found inside, so it's assumed he took them with him when he left. Linda Klama would waste little time reporting her brother to the police. Police, in turn, would waste very little time looking into Anthony's disappearance. According to a November 12th Daily Herald article, police had already accessed bank records and found that Anthony had made two small withdrawals of about $20 each from the ATM located inside Splinters, most likely to pay for his drinks. Dogs from the Wisconsin-Illinois Search and Rescue Team had also been used to comb a wooded area between Anthony's apartment and Splinters that he normally walked through to reach the bar, but had found nothing. One quick note for anyone who looks this area up on Google Maps, I'm not entirely sure where the wooded area was located, as I don't think it exists anymore. There's currently no wooded area between Foxfire and where Splinters was located. Google Maps Street View does show a wooded area in 2007, where a Firestone Tire and a Mexican restaurant now sit. However, this is located to the south of Foxfire and would have made little sense for Anthony to walk through it. In a November 14, 1998, Daily Herald article, 
Linda would describe her brother as a reliable and responsible person with no problems or enemies, and that the family had checked local hospitals as well as a Florida property that Anthony owned. She would go on to state, quote, I think he's hurt somewhere. He talks to someone in our family every other day, and he answers pages religiously. Police would also state in the article that they didn't yet suspect foul play, with Palatine Detective Commander Robert Haas stating, quote, As time goes by, this gets more bizarre. Usually when people take off, it's for a day or two. Through our investigation, nothing has happened that we can pinpoint. That's what makes it more mysterious. A week later, police dogs would be used to search the Deer Grove Forest Preserve, located about three miles west of Foxfire Apartments, but this would also yield no results. In a November 21st Daily Herald article about the search, Linda Klama would express that she did not believe they'd find Anthony alive, stating, quote, At this point, we think he's dead. We are just looking for his body. No one has heard anything from my brother. She would also note that it was strange that Anthony would go out so late on a work night, especially to have a few drinks and play darts. Sadly, the days would soon move into Thanksgiving, a day that Anthony had been excited about spending with his father and siblings in Hanover Park. But instead, there would be little to be thankful for, as the days would continue to grow colder and darker as December loomed, and still no sign of Anthony Clama. December, however, would bring new information. In a December 5th article, the family would express their first concerns that foul play may have been involved, although police would state that there was still little evidence of such. But things were indeed becoming suspicious. It was around this time as well that new information would start to come to light. Police would report that the handset to Anthony's cordless telephone, which contained a caller ID, was missing. On this, Detective Robert Haas would comment, quote, He could have taken it with him to the bar, because it was close to his house. This phone is 900 megahertz, so it was powerful. It was new, so he might have been checking it out. The other theory, of course, that Haas would note was, quote, Somebody else took it. This would prove interesting as it was also revealed at this time that Anthony received three phone calls at his apartment the night of his disappearance. The first came somewhere between 9 and 9.22 p.m. from a payphone at a Shell gas station located at 20020 North Rand Road, just shy of a mile north of the apartments. Something else to note on this is that a few reports do state that the call came from a Shell gas station in Lake Zurich on Rand Road. This one located about six miles north of Foxfire. A majority of reports, though, including the most recent one from 2012, mention the location nearest to the apartment. And that particular article cites the information coming directly from a police sergeant involved in the case. So that's the prime one that I'm going to be working with. But for the sake of transparency, I do want to note that there are conflicting news reports in case anyone does do their own follow-up research. 
The other two phone calls came from Dominic's Finer Goods, which I believe is now a Hobby Lobby, located at 615 East Dundee Road, a little over a mile south of Foxfire. These two calls would come in around 1.40 a.m. on November 6th. Surveillance video was pulled at both locations, but nothing of use was found on either video. Linda Klama would explain that the calls were short, about 10 to 20 seconds each. She would go on to state, quote, Tony didn't normally get calls that late. There was a connection, so the answering machine may have picked up. But after that, we found the answering machine off. Adding to the mystery, it would be revealed that two witnesses did see Anthony on November 5th after he left the bar. Sometime between 11.30 and midnight, Anthony was seen arriving at the Foxfire Apartments with another individual. According to the witnesses, Anthony and the other man were seen getting out of a light-colored car. They then headed through the main entrance of the apartment building and were not seen after that. The witnesses described the man as being 5 foot 9, 190 pounds, with black hair and a thin mustache. They, however, were not able to get a long look at him to properly describe him for a sketch artist. It is believed, based off other witness accounts, that this is the same man that was seen playing darts with Anthony at the bar. Employees at Splinters would note that this man was not a regular at the establishment. Linda would tell the Daily Herald that this was strange because the man parked, quote, on the south end near the dumpsters when there were plenty of open spaces in front of Tony's apartment. The revelations of this new information would add suspicion to the disappearance. With phone calls and a mystery person, things seemed dimmer than ever. This would also add confusion to the family as to why anyone would have wanted to hurt Anthony at all. According to Linda, he wasn't involved in drugs or gambling, and he wasn't in debt to anyone. She would tell the Palatine countryside, quote, He didn't mess around with drugs. He wasn't involved with rough characters. As far as I know, he didn't have any enemies. Something happened that night. I don't think anyone planned to kill him. Unfortunately, at this point, this is where the case begins to rapidly go cold. There's a few more news reports into 1999 and 2000, and the Cook County Crime Stoppers get involved, offering an award for information, but unfortunately, no new information is shared. And as far as the public knows, no new leads are found. During that time, the Klamma family would put up $10,000 for a reward and would start a foundation in Anthony's name to help find missing adults. Linda would tell the Daily Herald in January of 2000, Quote, Society doesn't take missing adults, especially males, seriously. But victims of John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer were all missing adults at one time. The Klamath Foundation has since disbanded, so there's no current resource for them. But a November 2000 Chicago Tribune article describes the nonprofit as a place that provides tips on what to do if an adult is missing. It also aimed to assist families in raising funds to hire private detectives, print free color flyers of those who are missing, and link families with other resources. The last news story I could find on Anthony's case is in the Palatine Journal on August 26, 2012. 
In this article, Palatine Police Sergeant Dave Daigle, who had been attached to the case for quite some time at this point, would mainly just repeat what was already reported earlier, but would state that family DNA had been taken to help with future identification, stating, quote, Back in 2007, we went ahead and collected DNA from his mom and dad and submitted it to the FBI, so we will have a profile if we ever need to identify him in the future. He would go on to state, quote, We interviewed everyone he knows. He didn't have any credit cards and was just not the type of person to pack up and leave. Daigle would also note that along with being the maintenance supervisor at the apartment, Anthony also acted as a sort of night watchman, making many calls from outside of his apartment for varying reasons, using, you guessed it, his cordless phone. After this article, coverage on Anthony's case pretty much goes dead outside of independent posts on Reddit and Medium. It's now been just shy of 25 years since Anthony Clama disappeared without a trace. And in that time, we've had a few strange things, such as the unknown man and the phone calls, but unfortunately, none of it was enough to garner any leads or answers. At this point, we're really only able to ponder and conservatively theorize about what may have happened. There's a lot of strangeness here, and the timeline of the night was sort of let known to the public all out of whack and could have been deemed a little confusing. So here's a basic rundown. Around 9 p.m. on November 5th, 1998, Anthony Klama leaves his apartment at Foxfire Apartments and walks to Splinter Sports Bar, located within minimal walking distance of his home. Somewhere between 9 and 9.22 p.m., he receives a phone call from a Shell gas station located around a mile north of his home. From what records can show, a connection may have been made to Anthony's phone, but it wasn't long enough for a conversation, much like the caller hung up once they got the answering machine. While at Splinters, Anthony makes two ATM withdrawals, equaling about $40. He's also seen playing darts with an unknown male who was not a regular at the bar. Anthony then leaves the bar at approximately 11.30, and then is seen between 11.30 and midnight, exiting a light-colored vehicle with an unknown male, believed to be the same man he was playing darts with, and then is seen entering the building with the unknown male. This is the last time that we know that Anthony is seen, and it's unknown when the other man's vehicle left the parking lot. Lastly, at approximately 1.40 a.m., two phone calls are placed to Anthony's phone from a payphone located at Dundee's grocery store, located about a mile south of Tony's apartment. Both these calls are long enough to make a connection, but most likely not to have a conversation. Anthony's apartment was locked. There was no sign of a struggle, his car and bicycle were left behind, and the one thing of note that was missing was the handset to his cordless phone, which did include a caller ID display. I'm going to be honest, I don't really know where to start here. There's so much strangeness compacted into the few details we have, and it's really hard to come up with a conclusion, even at a theorizing level. Foul play is obviously the easiest conclusion to come to, given all the strange circumstances. Mystery man, mystery phone calls, a missing phone, and everything of value left behind. 
Although, what led to that is easily anyone's guess. Let's start with the missing phone. While it's certainly possible the phone was taken to keep the phone numbers from the payphone from being seen, it was also noted that Anthony did use the phone in a night watchman capacity and had made several phone calls to police in the past. While a 900 megahertz cordless phone could definitely be powerful, it was probably inoperable to Anthony by the time he reached Splinter's, unless he shelled out some serious cash on it. That's not to say, though, that he didn't have it on him in case he saw foul play afoot either on his way to or from the bar, as it probably was usable through the majority of the apartment complex while he was on foot. And he could have simply still had it on him when he left his apartment again. I also want to note that both Anthony's keys and wallet were gone. While he certainly could have had his wallet on him already if he was forced out the door, I do doubt he would have been given the opportunity to turn around and lock the door behind him. This gives off the idea that Anthony could have possibly believed he was going to be returning to his apartment. It is, however, the man and the late phone calls that don't sit right for me. From all accounts, it was odd for Anthony to be out that late on a work night, and it was definitely odd for him to be receiving phone calls at 1.40 in the morning. To everyone's knowledge, Anthony didn't gamble, wasn't in debt to anyone, and had no enemies. To our knowledge, the man was a stranger to everyone in the bar, and assumingly to Anthony. Given that info, there could always be the chance that Anthony ran afoul of this individual, and from whatever happened there, the rest of the evening was put into motion. That, however, doesn't explain the phone calls, and unfortunately, unless this case is resolved, we may never know what those were about. There's also the theory that Anthony left on his own accord and chose to disappear. However, this seems unlikely from both family and investigator perspectives, but unfortunately, we also cannot rule it out completely. 25 years ago, a man leaves his home, heads to the bar to probably just unwind a little, and is never seen again after that night. A man who survived what could have been a deadly fire at only 18 months old, only to disappear without a trace years later. In that time, there's been mystery and few answers, but a family has never given up hope, even taking time to start an organization to help others in the same situation as them. They still haven't found the answers they've needed, though, and for almost 25 years, a son and brother has been greatly missed with his family not knowing if he left or was taken. Whatever happened that night, November 5th, 1998, there's a chance that the answers lie with the man seen with Anthony that night. While it's doubtful that you're listening, if you are, it's not too late to come forward and to do the right thing. Maybe whatever happened wasn't intentional, or maybe it was and you have a conscience to clear. Or maybe you just have the information that can lead to those responsible if foul play is indeed the answer. It's not too late to give a family closure and alleviate their grief. When last seen, Anthony Klama was described as a Caucasian male with brown hair, green eyes, and sporting a mustache. He's six foot one, 160 pounds. 
He has several Native American-style tattoos across his shoulders and chest, and he was last seen wearing a blue and white flannel shirt, a baseball cap, dark-colored jeans, and a blue plaid flannel jacket. Anthony was 36 years old at the time of his disappearance, and if alive today, would be 61 years old. If you have any information on the disappearance of Anthony Clama, please contact the Palatine Police Department at 847-359-9000, the Illinois State Police at 217-785-3327, or Cook County Crime Stoppers at 800-535-7867. If you're looking for any further information, the Daily Herald seems to have done the most coverage, which can be found in archived articles. The Palatine Journal, as well as the Palatine Countryside, also did some coverage. I personally found Anthony's case through the Charlie Project, and I strongly encourage you to share this podcast or any other sources you may look into to keep Anthony's case alive and out there. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at Midwest Mystery Files Pod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relevant to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches and more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.